Bad news, I'm afraid, everyone. I'm back. And so you've not got your delightful co-hosts, guest hosts. You've got me. Um, so welcome back uh, to me and welcome back to you if you're tuning in this week. I'm sorry we went on on, uh, on Monday. Obviously, you had Leanne's uh, presence yesterday. I haven't watched that show back, but it looks a belter. Um, so check that back out. You shed Ishmael Beckford on uh, to, and hurt both Leanne and Ishmael. Um, elected to council recently on for the CSP, which is good. And I, I, sorry, I forget their other guests' uh, name, but I'm looking forward to looking back over that. So check that out from yesterday's show uh, on Monday. Uh, contrary to popular belief, I wasn't not on on air because I was grieving. Uh, I was just, just had some childcare duties. I was, you know, that I know, I was devastated about the football, etc. We're talking a bit about that on Friday, as well as all the um, cultural phenomena good, bad and very ugly, of course, that's emerged off the back of the football. We'll be talking about that on Friday's show. Uh, but today, I'm very excited. I love shows like this. This is uh, a new acquaintance of mine. Sarah Bamford has joined me to talk about MSK for Adolescence. And the reason why I especially love shows like this is it is a truly emergent thing, right? Social media at its very best. Sarah reached out saying, this is annoying. And I said, I know, I agree. We need to raise awareness of this. And so what am I to do with that when I'm not an expert in that field is to speak to actual experts. And that's what we're doing today on today's show to talk about MSK for adolescents and all of the complex sort of things that emerge when you try to solve a problem like that, right? From policy to education to clinical expertise and competence, right? So um, without further ado, with a couple of clicks of buttons, I hope I can bring you Sarah Hello. Bamford. Can you hear me? I can hear you loud and clear. Good. Lovely, fantastic. Well, thanks so much for joining me. As, as I just said, I'm like so pleased when these sorts of things emerge. So could you just tell the listeners, audience, viewers a little bit about yourself before we get stuck into the subject matter? Yeah, so I'm a purely MSK physiotherapist um, with a bit of paediatrics experience when I did my rotations. And then I was basically that that therapist in an adult's MSK department said, I don't mind seeing over 12s. I quite like it. And so I just started doing it as part of my role as I kind of got through the MSK um, kind of tiers of five, sixes, sevens. It started to be more of a string to my bow. And I was just like, hang on a minute. We're not prioritizing these. We're not doing anything. So after five years of banging on my manager's door, I was like, we need to do something. And and finally, in the last six months, my department have actually made me an adolescent specialist and given me the time to dedicate, to train, um, supervise staff, educate um, commissioners, GPs, and hopefully making better links. And I work in a community service, a large community service on the south coast. So we're not adjoined to any acute hospital or children's hospital. So it's very much I'm talking about community services, um, basically in the sticks maybe, <laughs> um, and actually how um, we can um, make an actual adolescent pathway. And so I'm finally being given the time and dedication to do that. And so that's why I was like shouting to you and seeing what else other people are doing in the area. And it's hard to find at the minute. Yes, uh, absolutely. And, uh, and a really interesting thing, because that you, you're certainly not alone in that mm -hmm. phenomena emerging where in an MSK department, it's like, you know, who's willing to, um, who's, it's not even then, we're not graced enough with the numbers to say, like, who's best placed to, who's most qualified to, yeah. it's usually like, who's willing to is enough. And then those subspecialisms emerge. I remember in early departments, I was involved in uh, that same thing happened that then led to not just adolescence, but like almost like the casting provisions and stuff like that. And then the, yeah. the Talapes clinics. And that's how these some, some specialists sometimes emerge. But 
we're making a point of speaking about adolescents as yeah. distinct pediatrics, and you made the point there at 12 plus. Is that hard and fast in your service? And is that a, in, is that a, a general rule across the piece? Oh, it's not a general rule across at all. So in our, our in in the South Coast area, um, down in Portsmouth on the central South Coast in Hampshire, it is 12 and over. So I specifically see 12 to 80, up to 18 year olds. But if you go down the road who have the same community trust, they have a big children's hospital, and none of their adults see not to 19s at all. You go, I've got colleagues in Birmingham who are paediatric services, not to 19. So she can see a telepace, but then see a complex type three and stable shoulder and a 16 year old county rugby player. Yeah. And that's, that's a very big, broad um, expertise that's needed. And uh, that's why I, quite like where I am and I'm not really peds but I'm not really adults I'm stuck in the middle of course yeah and, and that that is even within zooming in at that age range there's so much variety that still applies there so uh, much from, you know, from pers persistent pain to acute sporty and of course yeah. they're not distinct um so you know a, a fascinating area that, that is general in its specialty what's your take then on that age range because I think that this, you have to draw the line somewhere and each service yeah. is different and we probably I think we're going to come to this in conversation that we want it to be more joined up um, and it should be more consistent hmm. however I am concerned when that line is drawn so arbitrarily at 12 because you're mm -hmm. talking about often established puberty in girls but 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 early puberty in boys that can can, can get get into it um, sooner um, yeah. than that so I just wondered what your thoughts are on on where that line gets drawn and how comfortable you are with that? Uh, for me, I have worked in paediatrics as well as adults. So I used to be the MSK lead for paediatrics and adults at the same time. So I feel like I've got the skills to be able to kind of wishy-washy over that line. I get worried sometimes about paediatric um, therapists seeing up to 19 because we're talking adults nearly in those age ranges. They've gone through puberty and so understanding how it's a bit different and having that advanced um, rehabilitation and more complex injuries. More, But then we've got 12-year-olds who haven't gone through puberty and you've still got those developmental problems. Sometimes I've picked up developmental problems in something that is something like an MSK patient with just knee pain and actually it's mild CP or, or, or weird and wonderfuls that come with peds. And so it's hard to draw that line. I feel comfortable with that line, but I don't know how others how others feel. And I think sometimes the paediatrics and the adult services talk to each other. We've got this, you know, high level person, please could you see this? And then, you know, um, you, you have adults like, oh, I've got this kid who's got ASD features, is a toe walking, can't really handle the department, it's not very appropriate, can you see? And I think I'm a very good link in between the two, but um, I don't I don't know if other services have that, have that link between the children's services and have that education and that nice flow of talking. I certainly talk to my paediatric colleagues on a nearly everyday basis and they, they we troubleshoot and I think that's what's needed at the minute. And so... I feel comfortable with that line. I don't know how many paediatric therapists feel comfortable or how many adult therapists that are seeing 12-year-olds in that department. The fact that a 10-year-old can walk into a department in an MSK department that is notoriously busy, that is, we've got curtains, not doors, that worries me sometimes on the whole safeguarding and can is that therapist trained enough to deal with a 10-year-old MSK problem? 
I don't know. I've opened a big door to, no, no, to it's talking. Great. It's a great point. I'm just making sure I try and work out which you've opened several doors and working yeah, out sorry. which one to walk into. No, it's fine. It's that's the nature I of think the topic. Knowledge isn't it? and safeguarding and expertise. Yeah. Well, let me just go into the because the privacy thing is fascinating, isn't it? Because that's like a legacy issue in in every which way is the fact that we've often mm. for some reason often moth-eaten car curtains that are well faded <laughs> yeah. it's like often the world's most terrible curtains not just curtains yeah. but then having a curtain between some of the, the really complex and intimate conversations that, that, that need to be had in any age group uh, mm -hmm. is a fascinating sort of hangover in many ways uh, but then it also has its upsides doesn't it you learn a lot through curtains yeah you do yeah so you don't always want to get rid of them but what's um on, 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 let's just go to that safeguarding piece then, because it is an interesting and probably sensitive conversations are overrepresented yeah. amongst this population group. Is that fair? Would would we say? Yeah. In that instance, what what sort of things do you think that that presents as a bit of challenge with for adolescents? I think it's everything down from being in an adult department, um, even from sitting in the waiting area to sitting in a busy department, um, seeing you know adults, and then they're already most children haven't been to physiotherapy department they're already a bit worried about talking to you and then seeing how busy it is and then seeing you know they'll only open up in privacy or if they feel comfortable and i think that it raises quite a lot of safeguarding issues whether that being able to express themselves um uh, being able to talk to um others but equally maybe being a bit intimidated by what's in the environment we don't know um you know the pay that you know the types of patients that are coming into different um situations and different departments i think i'm babbling on a little bit but it's worrying in every part and i think we need to make sure that children are feel comfortable in the environment when they're opening up to us and feel safe and sometimes we do our utmost, but an MSK department with curtains and a very busy department like the one I work in has over 30 therapists. And I wouldn't say that's um, that's a department that a child would feel totally comfortable in if they had any worries. Sure. Yeah. So it's like that, yeah, quite a daunting uh, bustle to that, yeah. that sort of department I can envisage. I'm retrofitting a bit of a conversation that we've had about uh, <laughs> so pelvic health therapy yeah like that right where we're trying to work out some of the sensitivities and governance but also just the uh, appropriateness of it nested within msk services mm -hmm. and i want to ask then a question that i've asked in those conversations which is how much do you think it should be an upskilling and competence building across your msk generalists of which there's most of us you know um, adult services or how much do you think that we need to carve out highly specialised or, or more specialised roles such as yours? Ooh, that's a good question. I have one on the show. One good question on the show. <laughs> um, I think because I've been made a specialist in this role, I think that is needed. I think a point of contact, and I'm not saying I know everything, I just have a wide range of experiences over my MSK um, colleagues in my department. Um, what When they come to me, it's often um, it's often something that I've dealt with before, whereas it's first thing that they've you know they've sure. ever seen. So they've seen a safeguarding note on a patient, and so even understanding the acronyms, they're like, oh, what is this? And I know what it is, and I know I you know I've dealt with it before, and so I can provide that reassurance. But a definite upskilling throughout the whole department, throughout the whole department. I think when we start, when I start to raise a question 
we all need level three safeguarding in the whole department. And my my boss was like, that's that's over that's over 60 people. I'm like, well, wherever there's a child and we're seeing them in the environment, then a level three safeguarding is needed. And that's a that's a lot of work to do level three safeguarding. And so huge upskillings needed, huge upskillings needed in a clinical environment. But equally, I think my department and especially my boss feels a lot safer with someone named and specialist. And I'm like I said, I don't think I can deal with everything, but I've had um, a wide range of experiences and so have dealt with it. Whereas if you spoke to quite a lot of MSK physios, have they ever had to deal with a safeguarding issue? Have they ever had to raise safeguarding then and there? Have they had to do a MASH referral? Have they had to do anything? And I'd say it's quite rare. Whereas in when you've been in paediatrics before, it's unfortunately not very rare. Yeah, absolutely. It's funny you've said about acronyms and some of the other more specialised mm -hmm. jargon. I remember um, fairly early in my career, I made the mistake of thinking that the acronym for SUFI was a safeguarding acronym so i mixed exactly. it up with something like mash and yeah. uh, and and, uh, and and so i'd egg on my face from that one i but i fortunately asked the right questions to the right people yeah. someone in a similar situation to you that were able to sort of code, you know, decode that for me what's the um on the service provisions side i think this is the sort of thing that can get solved on a local level when you've got a bit of population density or you've got a or you've got like a an obvious service um thoroughfare of, of, of patients that you've got an established base of, uh, on staffing you know you've kind of got some consistency some some of the people that are, that are well time served within that department i think those things seem to set the foundations for really decent innovation such as what they're describing within your service and i think that then I, I'm one that sort of is frustrated by the fact that that doesn't provide a blueprint for others. And I think it can yeah. be more, but I also am sympathetic to the fact that there's just, we're describing best practice that just doesn't exist everywhere. No, exactly. And I'm singing the praises of my um, service and my department, but I've been moaning, going on about it for years and years and years. And the only reason why I was kind of given this role is because I started to think about going into a lower limb specialist role in adults. And my boss was like, whoa, 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 whoa. Where you what, what are you doing? I was like, well, I feel I'm bored. I've had my children, and I want to focus on my career. And she's like, well, you've been moaning on about it for years and years. Why don't we make it a pathway? I've got a little bit of money. What do you reckon? And I was like, right. yeah, okay then. And so um, I tried to reach out on the ICSP. I've never really been on Twitter up until like six months ago. But I met some amazing physios, some amazing ACPC um, uh, MSK committee members who are trying to drive that change and 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 it's slowly starting to happen and there's more right. and more people shouting louder like there's there's MSK global task force pediatric MSA global task force that has basically done this amazing paper recently I think it's headed by Helen Foster I don't know if I've got a name on but it's basically a massive call to action about worldwide awareness of MSK adolescents and that more needs to be done worldwide never mind here um, and um, there's amazing resources are coming more and more and everyone's shouting a little bit louder, but I feel like because in the NHS are taking it slowly. And I, the biggest thing that I, that we need to remember is that one in three children, school-age children complain of MSK pain. One in three are in chronic pain and paediatric problems have massive adolescent, massive adult consequences. MSK Health costs NHS five billion pounds a year to deal with that. Why are we not focusing on children and adolescents MSK Health to prevent something that's happening in the future? And 
I think this is the first time in my career I've gone, right, I'm not going to stand for this. I'm going to reach out to Jack Chu. I'm going to do this. I'm going to reach out to people and see if there's anybody else there as frustrated as I am. And I just it just baffles me. Well, I mean, that's the thing. You, you, I mean, you've absolutely nailed that with regards to the social consequences of this, um, you know, this, this inaction in many ways, but mm. also a bit of naivety as well to people not realizing just how serious these things can be. Mm-hmm. The disability sequelae that comes from these things that, that then take people out of not just sport, but participation in activity, right? Yeah. This, 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 we know the drop-off rates from when PE stops. But yeah. imagine when that feels physically mandated by someone's what should be a transient disability ends up yeah. being something that, that almost scars them. I mean, we, yeah. um, I've recently spoken to, in, in a different context, then spoken to some young girls that stop because their knees cracked, right? You're getting basic yeah. patellofemoral crepitus that they perceived to be something more than it was and they'd had some poor advice in that direction mm-hmm. that meant that they've then withdrawn that coupled with all the other reasons that they might not yeah. means that they've then gone into the later teens then thinking that they were vulnerable, fragile, that sort of thing. So it's huge. Yeah. What we need to remember is that 90% of our bone density is laid down in puberty. So if we've got a child who's inactive, that's huge. So we're still we're still laying down bone until we're about 30. So I might stop now. Um <laughs> oh, it was a few years ago. Um so we we lay 90% of our bone density down in puberty. So we've yeah. we've got an inactive child in pediatric services in adolescence, then that is an is an osteoporotic problem hugely but we're not going to pay for it until it's later on what is the biggest outgoing um other than cancer and strokes in the nhs osteoporosis medication uh, operations life in hot time in hospitals but it's a pediatric problem with adolescent consequences again so that 90 percent bone density in 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 puberty and so when i vet referrals if they're not participating then that that that's um, is an urgent for me you know, obviously you're limping ones, but sometimes I'm like, no, if they're not participating, it's urgent. We need to get them back participating because if we lose, if we've got like a little window where they drop off, then they're going to be likelihood of being an inactive adult. And so an inactive adult, then we've got the whole cycle of the health problems that we've got. And then it just kind of, if we think about it like that, and if, if commissioners and NHS England are trying, but it's it's not filtering down it's not going into the services enough i don't believe myself specifically in my area it might not be in everybody else's area one of the things that i'm i'm um, it's only because of the shortness of these shows that I yeah do, sorry we were to no 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 if we were to if we were to it's, it's nothing on you i, 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 I could go keep, on i want you to keep riffing on this and i'm sorry that i'm just trying, <laughs> trying to bring it to to another another angle that i think we should pursue um which is that I get criticised of sort of compartmentalising or seeming to compartmentalise things like biopsychosocial, right? but, uh, but equally it's only for shorthand because we know that these things are always integrated mm. and influencing each other. But we're kind of speaking to some of the social consequences as well as some of the social determinants often of these problems. So I wanted to just ask, on the social side, you've, you've got various things with regards to participation and we know that the system and the structures and the, the, the psychology that informs that. But also I wanted to ask about familial consequences because I think that was one of the, the, the sort of reasons why my MSK colleagues and I'll admit myself in the past have kind of thought when it comes to the crunch sometimes, the social complexity and the familial negotiation and, and even some of the school-related factors and, and things make it more complex than we kind of fancy. And therefore there's this inherent opt-out, right? where 
when it comes to when the managers come and say who who wants to see who wants to opt into this who wants to do further education in this area one of the things that makes many say no is that side of it it becomes yeah. a bit more complex now is it overblown and more scary than less scary than people are saying or is that a key component of your role it's a key component of my role definitely i'm given more time to spend with them um i'll pretty much say eight out of ten of my patients have all had some kind of cams input um a lot of what i do is educate schools because i've got lots of non non-attending schools because they're so kind of got chronic pain or you know lockdown has affected them so much they're blaming pain rather than the actual yeah. anxiety um i write letters to pediatricians i write letters to orthopedics i write letters to school i educate um and so yeah it is a big thing but when you're used to doing it and when you've got the knowledge and you've been given the time from your primary care um organization it's something very manageable and actually it's part of your job that comes with it and I think that's um I have specialists in my department who are lower limb specialists and stuff like that and they I, they don't say it but they you know uh, like what makes you a specialist I'm like well I look at it from a whole point of view I'm doing I'm, I'm not ordering x-rays I'm not ordering MRIs I'm, I'm making sure that this child is cared for in every element of not so I'm not just looking at the adolescent knee pain that could just give in I'm looking at the whole whole part of that person how does it affect them socially even trying to take some onus to onto them because they use teenagers obviously you know teenagers aren't the nicest uh, beings sometimes to their parents <laughs> and so often what i try and do is educate the the child and actually taking control of their own problem and so they're not their mum isn't nagging them not again to do that we've, we've got all of that and then if a school isn't if a kid's not participating they're bored if a kid's not participating they might not go to school and then it starts to cause problems with the parent and then the parents off work because they're having to talk you know to be with the be with the child and then it all kind of can have a head both socially family and everything so i think i'm trying to get back to the point is that it's not as scary when you do it all the time but it is scary when you only get one every every 10 every you know every couple of weeks that, what i've done in my be. service is that we've educated four or five therapists that have educate have time and know that that's what they need to do around it and they have regular supervision what we used to do is it just used to go out to the masses out to the masses and you just deal with it and you were lucky if you got me because i've got experience in peds and I, i'm like right all right this letter to school will do this but and then you might have somebody who is a very good therapist but just sees oscar slatter's there's your form off you go <laughs> yeah of course yeah i think that, that and that speaks to what we were saying about how yeah you're a competent department's all well and good but you also sometimes need those almost like caseworker roles i i i, I, I know I, yeah that's what that is a good way to put it a caseworker sometimes you do feel like that yeah well what, what, this reminds me we did a session at, at therapy live we had a pediatric stream and, and one of the sessions that we did which was very much more niche was talking about some complex pediatric and adolescent cases that we'd been involved in whose mothers happen to also be physios and stuff um and that that panel one of the things that I raised as a, as a potential route forward would be to try and have these um, you know, case management style roles whereby um, a qualified 
therapist and professional could bridge the gap between, mm-hmm. especially the, you know, some vascular and, and, and semi-oncology style cases that were, that bridged into MSK, right? Where it's that the, they f- fell through every net possible. It's, it needed someone to bring it together and become an advocate. And we ended up being that, but from the private sector, which was, which yeah. was tough. So it's not simple, uh, but, but it's, it's somewhat necessary. And more I hear about it, the more I realize that, that links such as what you're doing is what can, can bring it together. Do you think it can be blueprinted nationally and beyond, of course, but it's like, you know, how, how much can we decrease the postcode lottery around this sort of stuff? Yeah, that's a good question. And I think it brought, why can't it be blueprinted? Why can't there be a specific adolescent pediatric MSK? Why can't it be prioritized? Why can't, um, you know, we, why can't it be made a priority? It, it, it can. And the ACPC and the Global Task Force Committee and all the other ones that are shouting out loud of it are calling for it. And I'm not sitting here saying that I've got a blueprint at the minute. My job is to sure. kind of um, be a specialist, provide better care for my patients and teach people. And then hopefully slowly I'm going to go into the communities and talk to the GPs and the commissioners and things like that. And I think it can be blueprinted, just like we've got the SCP roadmap, just like we've got the, you know, the clinical specialist pathway where they're going to specialists rather than orthopedics, so we're taking them out of hospital. Why can't this be blueprinted for adolescents who are the future of our adults? So then maybe our orthopedic waiting list will be down, and then maybe our osteoporosis medication, you know, um, prices will come down. Why can't it? And I don't. I'm not the person to do it. Maybe I don't know, but why can't it be blueprinted yeah absolutely i see no reason i think that one of the things that people are a bit scared of is the is the fact that at the moment it's a, it, as a starting off point it's so disparate so yeah. there's so much variety that so it kind of much variety. People. however i would argue and i suspect i'm going to bandwagon you along with me unless you correct me is that because it's so broke there's more more to gain from improvements yeah. like you could get some quick wins you know we have this problem in msk wins. in msk Generally, we're trying to decrease unwarranted variation in service provision as well as in care quality. Mm. Th- that is something that's already ha- it has a version of this problem, but but there is there are some commonalities that are across the piece. Whereas in this, because it's so so broad, even the the age range is different. The, yeah, you know, who who sees these people? Um, is is, is these uh, these patients is is so varied? It means then. That although it feels like a bigger mountain to climb, you know, it's actually the the even if we got everyone to base camp, it'd be a big win, wouldn't it? So I think a, a case could be made for it being a higher priority. And the reasons you've mentioned as well with regards to the the social sequel. Do you think that? I mean, do you have any, either any evidence to this effect, or just anecdotally, the reparticipation type stuff, meaning? that their general health, you know, the, the sort of, we hear a lot about, about obesity, childhood diabetes, that sort of stuff. Do you, do you feel that, um, as I say, bring any evidence to bear of any flavour in that direction, but do you think that that has a positive impact as well and MSK has a role in that? I'm not going to lie, I don't have that much evidence because there's not much evidence out there with regards to focusing on um on like looking at those studies through improvement and participation there's lots of things shouting at it louder and I'm sure there are some something there but I haven't found it but yeah definitely um I've kind of forgotten the question now (laughs) just let's go to let's go to your anecdotal experience in service then do you feel when you when you re-engage people do you think that this it's got 
a, a effect on their health yeah definitely like i've got three boys at the minute that i've all gone into lockdown as uh 12 year old puppy fat boys they've then come out of lockdown 18 months 15 months later a good two foot taller a lot heavier they were playing football they were doing multiple sport and all three of them are larger than they should be they've grown they don't know what to do with their bodies they're literally their confidence is in their boots and three of them i've got them all together in the gym um they don't want to go to the gym i was like look kind of i'll get you all together and we'll do stuff and i'm literally just doing strengthening conditioning and mostly what i'm doing is getting their confidence up so they'll go and participate again and one boy who i met and i was like i'm not going to make a change to him i can't make a change to him uh, but i'll try and he literally nearly like i was a bit emotional anyway yesterday but he, i was like oh he cared he liked it and he was like, yeah, I like that. I like that. I'll come back again. And I generally thought he was not going to turn up. And I generally thought he wouldn't make an effort. I said, right, are you ready for a finisher? And he was like, yeah. And I said, let's do mountain climbers. And he was like, what is that? <laughs> and so I made him do mountain climbers. And he's like, right, 10 more. And I was like, oh, this is why I do it. So, yeah, yeah anecdotally, yeah. if we, if someone cares a little bit, then we can definitely make a change to these. But if they don't feel cared about, they don't feel, they feel like a burden, they're not going to do anything. Yeah, well, that's the thing about it being so deprioritized is that we need to make sure that we bring that up the agenda and, and have these conversations mm -hmm. and beyond. I think that what you've just described is like the center of the bullseye for all of us clinically, isn't it? Those ones that you're giving a, you're giving a chance to, it feels like a low percentage point that you, yeah. you're going for and then they get make the biggest difference. And that kind of speaks to what I just I said. I failed about, a lot though. Oh yeah, you know, it's like a, yeah, we, we, um, in this particular moment, we're not talking about those ones, but we can, <laughs> um, we need to, we need to pretend that that's every time, do we? But I think, mm. It's nice because it, it's kind of that, that, that those are where some some massive gains and, and make it all worthwhile as well. Um, one of the things I haven't done is, is draw the audience into this conversation, especially with, with new guests and stuff. I sometimes just get stuck into the, the meat of it. But I hope this hasn't been too uh, terrifying an experience and we can go again and we can get into some of the details. I definitely want to ask you, dear audience, uh, to, to get involved in the comments after the fact. Send emails if that's your preferred method. Info at physio-matters.com would be the easiest way to reach us. But also any comments on the feeds, wherever you might find it, be that Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, Twitter, or LinkedIn. I want to know what are your local service provisions? How much of this conversation resonates? Is there any of it that you feel you want to dispute because actually – you know, your experience has been has been contrary to this, both in terms of our analysis that we seem to share, as well as our take on the potential solutions and the, and the consequences of the solutions. Just love your, your thoughts on it. We've not been able to visit them live and I've not been able to engage you in it this time. Um, but I definitely want to keep this conversation going. My cogs are turning as to how as physiomatters and, and within our influence, especially in education, we could potentially do that. We did a, a stream at Therapy Live, that needn't stand alone. We've started to help to produce some content in that direction. We have a uh, adolescent uh, injury, uh, or children's injury service, it's called, but mainly adolescents that we see here at Choose Health uh, under Richard Saxton, who's, who's massively passionate about this area as well. And so there's a number of voices, Sarah's of course included, that are, that are starting to raise that both the alarm and putting their hands up to say, I'm happy to lead on some of this stuff. So if you're out there, you're hearing this, you're listening to it, get in touch. And at the very least, and I promise this won't be the only thing we do, but at the very least, we'll get you guys together 
And yeah, that'd be we great. Can agitate, and we can agitate to change uh, for creating said blueprint that, that Sarah quite uh, put brilliantly as to why it's so needed. So thank you so much for reaching out, Sarah. It's been lovely to get to know you. No, thank more. you. Thanks for letting me just rant on. Oh, no. It's, it's, it's great. It's been, it's been <laughs> wonderful. It's been uh, a great show. But uh, I hope we can do it again sometime. That'd yeah. Be, that'd be thank you. So, yeah. Th thanks a lot for your time. And, uh, yeah, we'll speak soon. For the rest of you, I'll see you tomorrow. Michael Schumacher is joining me on the show tomorrow who is our marketing consultant, who's not a therapist, but had a issue with back and neck, sorry, neck and shoulder pain, uh, neck and arm pain uh, as a radiculopathy. Um, and therefore, as someone that's in our industry but isn't clinical, it's been a fascinating journey for him getting various different opinions on it. And, uh, and he has some hot takes on what he's uh, experienced as a patient rather than as a marketing expert. So he's joining me on the show today to talk tomorrow to talk a little bit about his story, which I think will be fascinating insight. And then on Friday, as I said, we're going to sort of talk about the uh, the football a bit, which uh, might, might have me in tears, of course, but uh, especially what might have me in tears is all the things that have been the part of the fallout afterwards uh, cross-culturally. So we're going to talk about that and get stuck into that on Friday. But for now, thanks a lot, and uh, we'll, see, we'll hear from Sarah, no doubt, very soon. All right, take Thank care, you. everyone. Bye-bye.